you'll join me in Romans chapter 4. Romans 4 this morning, we are looking at verses 13 through 17 as we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Romans. You can find that on page 941 in the Blue ESV Bible if you would like to follow along there. Title of our sermon this morning is Heir of the World, and our keywords for our worshipers and training are promise, offspring, and heir. In 2015, there was a young man by the name of Walter Carr, and he made national news when his car broke down at his Alabama home, and so to make it to his first day of work at his brand new job, he decided he would walk the 20-mile journey to arrive on time. He had just secured a job with the Bellhops Moving Company, and he didn't want to lose his job, so he slept for four hours, and at midnight he woke up and he began his journey to the home of the family that they were going to help move. Well, along the way, he sat down several times to take breaks, and at one point he was approached by a police officer who was asking Walter what was he doing at that hour, sitting on the side of the road? Well, Walter explained his situation and that uh, what, he was, what he was doing, going to work, he still had 10 miles remaining in his journey, so the officer called two of his partners. The three officers brought him to breakfast and then gave him a ride on the final leg of his journey. Well, he arrived at the house at 6.30 in the morning, one of the officers explained to the homeowner exactly what was going on, and she offered him food and a couch to lay on until the rest of the crew arrived at 8 a.m. However, Walter was ready to work, and he started packing boxes before his new co-workers that he had never even met arrived. So Walter was a 20-year-old guy. He was working on finishing his associate's degree later that year. He was preparing to leave for Marine boot camp, when he was five years old, he and his mother lost their home in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. And when the moving crew arrived and introduced themselves to Walter, they thanked him for showing up. And then the homeowner explained to the crew about Walter's journey to get there in the first place. Well, after the move was complete, the customer contacted the CEO of the company and shared the story on Facebook and started a GoFundMe to help raise money to fix Walter's car. But the company CEO had something else in mind. He was being interviewed by the local news, and he said in the interview, Walter is incredible, and what he did is incredible. It's everything our company stands for. And so the CEO drove from his home in Chattanooga, Tennessee to meet Walter for lunch in Alabama. And Walter walked 30 minutes to get to the lunch with the CEO. And when he got there, the entire group of his co-workers from the police department, the family he helped move, and the CEO were there to surprise him. They all cheered for him, and the CEO handed him the keys to a brand new Ford Escape. Now, in the end, Walter simply expressed that he was thankful to be able to have a job, to inspire others, but he never expected in his lifetime that he would be given a brand new car. Now, we all love stories like this because it displays something that as Christians we appreciate, and really as humans we appreciate. We're created to work. 
We are created with this innate sense that we have a responsibility to work and to earn and to provide, but we also acknowledge that all of that is accompanied with toil and with difficulty. The curse of Genesis 3 assures us that all of that will be present. Nevertheless, our, our good Protestant work ethic, our American, uh, our American experience to, to work hard and to earn, all of that kicks in. And we love to hear someone who understands this and will do whatever it takes to get the job done, even walk 20 miles to get to work, to make sure they get there and do a good job and they, they work honestly to support themselves and their families. But what really makes this story special, of course, is that when others recognized Walter's sacrifice and commitment, they acted to serve him. He didn't earn a new car, even though the circumstances were difficult. He didn't deserve a new car. It's not a right. It wasn't owed to him in any way. But he got it anyway. And it was a wonderful moment for everyone Involved, But we hear these kinds of stories and realize that in our world, even when someone seemingly gets something for nothing, it's really not nothing at all, is it? If Walter hadn't done what he had done to get to work, if Walter hadn't been committed to getting to work, to do his job well, there's no way anyone would have taken the money and the effort to buy him a new car just because. There are plenty of people without cars, and nobody pays any attention to them. But Walter was different because of his work, because of his attitude. And it's good and it's right that we admire that in Walter and we appreciate his effort and his commitment, but our tendency is to think of everything that happens in terms of hard work, in terms of effort, in terms of commitment, all good and right things in their proper context. The problem, of course, is that we really don't believe that anything can be received for nothing. And so our understanding of the gospel can become distorted. We simply think, yes, okay, Jesus is for me, but it's not for no reason at all. I have to work to do so, so that the gospel will be for me. Or... I did something that this gospel is now for me. Or, Jesus is for me, but I, I have to go after Him. We can't shake it. Surely, the gospel is only for me after I've walked 20 miles and then maybe I'm ready. The gospel is for me, but, but it's after I've proved that I'm willing to put in the right amount of effort. The gospel is for me, but nobody ever gets anything for nothing. So I can't be a Christian based only and entirely on the basis of something I didn't do. It's the most difficult thing in the world to believe that while we were yet enemies, the righteous one died for the unrighteous. And by God's grace alone, he grants the gift of faith to his people that we might take hold of Christ and His righteousness. Christ who lived a perfect life that we were commanded to live but could not do. Christ who died the death on the cross that all of us deserve, taking on Himself the full weight and penalty of the wrath of God. Christ who was raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. All of this was done for us. And all of this is given 
to us. And none of it is because of any single thing about any one of us. We don't have to put in effort. We don't have to walk 20 miles. We don't have to be the hardest worker on our job. God does all the work. And it is ours by virtue of Him so loving the world that He willingly gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will have everlasting life. It is simply unbelievable, isn't it? And yet, it is the truest and greatest story of all time. And so as we continue in Paul's letter to the Romans this morning, we continue to see him expand on the freeness and the beauty of the gospel that he has been laying out since chapter 1 and verse 16, when he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Paul really got to the heart of the gospel after laying out all of the bad news about who we really are in our sinful rebellion against God and our inability to live up to God's standard. And then in chapter 3, he gets right to the heart of the gospel and shows us the way in which God's righteousness is revealed. He shows us the way in which we are saved. Namely, by grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has become the propitiation for our sins, in whose blood we may be justified. If you didn't hear the sermons from chapter 3, I encourage you to go back and listen. You might get a good grasp of exactly what we are talking about when we, when we talk about the gospel. Chapter 3 is central to all of Scripture. And its meaning on this most important issue, it is all about the saving power of God. Now, one of the other things you might recall at the end of chapter 3 is that Paul began addressing some of the criticisms, some of the, the arguments, the objections to his preaching that he anticipated would come. He raised hypothetical questions, four of them. and He knew the detractors would have these questions, so he provided a short response to each of them. And then we got into chapter 4, and we see now he's expanding on all of those answers in more detail. He, he looped back around to the top of the questions to begin working through his response to each one. Now, of course, Paul can do all of this masterfully because he knows all of their arguments. How does he know all of their arguments? Well, Paul very much sat in their place at one point in his own life. Before the Lord saved Paul, he was right where they are. And having heard the preaching of men like Stephen, it didn't only raise questions for Paul, it didn't only leave him saying what he was hearing was wrong, but it led him to a zeal that resulted in his overseeing the murder of those who believe the gospel. Paul was a zealot. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul knew the Scriptures. Paul had all of the objections. There wouldn't have been a single objection that was raised that wasn't familiar to Paul because he had those objections himself. So there's no doubt that when he was answering all of these questions that he was raising, Paul was thinking about what the Holy Spirit of God had done in his own life, in his own amazing work of salvation in his heart. And so he trusted that in time, the Holy Spirit of God would do an amazing work in the salvation of the hearts of all who heard his preaching. No argument raised could, could resist the irresistible work of the Holy Spirit. 
And Paul knew that. And so here we see him methodically, patiently, lovingly dismantling their arguments bit by bit. Now, you'll recall from the past two weeks that the way Paul is going to do this work of dismantling is not by creating a new argument out of thin air, but rather by by looking all the way back to Abraham. First, Paul showed us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We saw that in Genesis 15, 6. It wasn't anything about Abraham. It wasn't anything that Abraham did. He believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. It's as simple as that. It was faith alone. And so Paul showed us that Abraham had nothing to boast in. And he highlighted this reality by writing, when was Abraham justified? Was it before or after he was circumcised? And we saw that the important answer to that question was that it was before. And that was important to see because the Jews amongst those that Paul was, was writing to, that they were tempted to think of their Jewishness. They were tempted to think of their, their identity in their Jewishness and the sign of circumcision that all of this stood for something in terms of their salvation. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Salvation is not based on these signs. Circumcision was a sign and a seal of this covenant relationship between God and the Jews. It was not salvific. It was not a work that had to be performed so that God would show favor. It was not a means of obtaining God's grace or righteousness. It was a physical sign, a reminder that God has a covenant people, and that covenant is between God and the Jews, and it was a seal that those who bore the sign were those people. And so the Jews were depending on their circumcision, but Paul was telling them, do not look to that. It means something very different than what you are making it out to be. Look to Christ alone. Look to Christ. And so now this morning, Paul is continuing his argument using Abraham, but his line of argumentation shifts just slightly. And the question is, is it really possible? Is it really possible that we could ever get something so big, so important, the most important thing in all the world? Could we get something for nothing? No work done on our behalf whatsoever. Let's read together beginning in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, at this point in the letter, we get some sense 
that Paul is assuming a growing discomfort among the Jews about the freeness of the gospel that he is preaching. This will continue to be an issue throughout Romans, but it really is present here. To many of the Jewish Christians, if someone was really going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, there was still a need for things like circumcision, like law-keeping, like tradition-following. In other words, it was almost in their minds as though someone had to become a Jew first, and then Jesus was sort of added into the equation. So now Paul is, is coming around, and he's saying, listen, this justification is solely by faith alone, and there are no works of your own that can be included in this gospel. And they weren't comfortable with that kind of talk. They weren't comfortable with the freedom that truly exists in the gospel. And so Paul's argument extends beyond just the non-believing Jews. He's now right at the heart of, of the Jews who embrace Christ as the Messiah, but have not embraced the full liberty of the gospel. They're hung up on Christ plus something else. So Paul hangs on to Abraham just a little bit longer here in his argument as he's confronting these false notions of what it means to be right with God. And he shows us in our first point this morning in verses 13 and 14 that the law of God has never been the means of justification. Perhaps the Jews could have agreed with Paul's explanation that we've seen over the past two weeks when it comes to Abraham. They might look at one another and sort of shrug as he's talking and say, yeah, you know, he does have a point here. But there comes a point, and we have arrived, <laughs> when they most certainly would want to slam on the brakes and say, now, Paul, you're trying to take everything away from us. And, and we might agree with, with where you're going with some of this, but do not think that you can take away the books of the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Now, to be clear, we're, we're not suggesting that as Paul writes here, as he writes of the law, that he's, he's not writing specifically of the Ten Commandments here. This is actually not much to do with the moral law, but more the ceremonial aspects of the law and, and even broader, uh, the, the Pentateuch on the whole, the first five books of the Bible. And so Paul's argument here is, is flowing directly from his discussion about circumcision. And circumcision was part of the ceremonial law of God. So there's no argument to be made about the moral law, and that's not Paul's point. I know some of you, very astute theologians, were about to argue with Paul right alongside the Jews, but you have to recognize exactly what he means here by the law. He's primarily not focused here about the moral aspect, but about the Torah. And so Paul is saying, well, you may be thinking about the law, but I'm talking about Abraham. Let me ask you this question. Did Abraham have the books of the law? Did Abraham have Genesis through Deuteronomy? You see, what Paul is doing is the same thing that he did when he dealt with circumcision. Was Abraham circumcised before or after he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, it was after, of course. 
And so circumcision wasn't what counted him righteous. That was not the basis of his justification. And the same thing here. Was the law of God that was given to Moses, was that before or after Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Well, it was long after. And therefore, the promise from God to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, it wasn't from the Torah. It was well before. And so Abraham believed God, and his believing God was believing that the promise would be fulfilled. And it was long before the law came through Moses. And so once again, we see that Abraham's righteousness came by, as Paul writes, the righteousness of faith. As he sort of pushes this even a little bit further in verse 14, saying, look, if this was about the law, if this was about upholding the law... As it came through Moses, if this is about the Torah, then, then Abraham is in big, big trouble because he never had it and he couldn't adhere to it. And if he couldn't adhere to it, which is the standard that you Jews are suggesting, there is no way that he could be justified by faith and the promise of the inheritance would be null and void. So how did that promise come to Abraham and his offspring? It was pure grace. It was by the grace of God alone that Abraham was given this promise. There is no other possibility. There is no other explanation. It is by God's grace alone by which Abraham came to faith and was justified. Notice that God didn't say to Abraham, Abraham, in the future, I'm going to be giving some legal requirements. And those legal requirements, once they are met, I will fulfill my promise. But those have to be met first for me to make good on what I've promised. No, that's a silly notion. What did the Lord do? The Lord simply took hold of Abraham, remember, and brought him out. And he said, look up to the stars. And he made a promise. You and your offspring will be the heirs of the world. Solely upon grace, hundreds of years before the law was given through Moses. Now, if you think about how this would have landed on the ears of the Jews, you can sort of imagine there's some serious hesitation here. They hear Paul telling them that everything they have depended on, all of the things that they have done that they've depended on to be right with God, all of those things are not what God looks to that he would declare them righteous. So look, for you, what are you depending on? Maybe when you became a Christian, some bad preacher man told you, you walked down the aisle and you prayed a certain prayer, so now you're saved. And if you hear that and you don't really understand the gospel, what are you going to be depending on? Well, you're not depending on Christ. You're not depending on the saving grace of God who gave you the faith to believe that you might walk by faith in Christ alone. You're depending on some point in time when you you got up from your seat and walked to the front of the church to the preacher and he prayed with you and you're depending on that moment instead of depending on Christ. You see, and then some guy like me comes along and he says, you're walking down the aisle and you're repeating some prayer after someone, that doesn't mean anything at all. 
It doesn't mean anything at all. You're coming to Christ empty-handed, recognizing that you have nothing to offer, not even changing your, your geographical location, not even a special prayer. You have nothing to offer at all before God, but it is only by His grace alone that you have faith, and that faith is a gift from God that you might love and trust and hope in Him alone. That is what matters, and that is all of God. And if you hear that for the first time, and you've been relying upon your walk and your prayer, you're going to be a bit unsettled, right? I just pulled the rug out from under you that you were standing on, hoping that was what was keeping you safe, hoping that was what keeps you right with God. And you're, you're looking back to that moment instead of looking to Christ. And now it's gone. That's not it. That's not what you're called to hope in. That's not what you're called to look to. You must look to Christ if you are to live. And so many people will say, well, I hope I'm saved. I hope I'm right with God. But the person who looks to Christ alone and understands the gospel and all that the gospel is for us will say, I know that I am saved. I know that I am right with God because of Christ. Because Christ lived for me. Because Christ died for me. Because Christ was raised from the dead for me and He saved me by faith alone. Brothers and sisters, friends, what are you depending on? Where is your hope? In what or in whom do you place your confidence? What do you trust that will be there for you that you might make it beyond this life into the next? That you come before God that you might stand in confidence before Him and not scared that He might not receive you. It is only by faith trusting that as Jesus Christ came into this world, that He lived a perfect life that you were required to live but could not. It is only by faith that you trust that the death of Christ received in Himself the full weight, the wrath of God, the penalty of your sin on your behalf. It is by faith that you trust that Jesus' resurrection from the dead conquered sin and death on your behalf that you might live forever by faith alone. Do you have faith in Christ? If you do not, if you're looking to some other means of satisfaction, some other means of assurance, give it all up and look to Christ alone. Come to Christ. He invites you to freely joyfully come to Him and rest in Him alone. There is nothing else that can save you. Look to Christ. Well, Paul shows us, secondly, in verse 15, that sin is a transgression of God's law, not man's law. Now, Paul makes a very important, very poignant point here. I could really spend an entire sermon on this verse, but I won't for now. We'll see. This is Paul's very simple, very loaded statement about what the law does. What is the law's function? And here it is. Here's what Paul tells us. The law brings wrath, and if there is no law, 
There is no sin. So let's think about both of these things. First, what is the purpose of the law? The law reveals what God's standard is, right? And so Paul is saying it negatively by saying, to transgress the law of God is to bring the wrath of God out. God's wrath is reserved for transgression of the law. The law doesn't offer promises, but demands punishment for sin. It was given to reveal our depravity. It was given to point us to Christ as the Redeemer of our souls. And through the law, the more we sin, the greater our guilt. And the greater our guilt, the more wrath we deserve. And we understand this, right? It's, it's in our children's catechism. What is sin? Sin is any transgression of the law of God. What is meant by transgression? Doing what God forbids. And, and what does every sin deserve? The anger and judgment of God. And so we recognize that all sin, every single sin that is ever committed by any man, every, any woman, any child, every sin will be paid for and the wrath of God is stored up against it. Every sin will be paid for in one of two ways. Either, either the sinner will pay the penalty for their sins everlastingly in eternal judgment, or Christ has paid the penalty on the cross. But no sin will go unpunished. And so the Jews may have hoped to inherit eternal life through the law, but the law only results in wrath. But there's something else here that may be easy to miss. So let's think about the second part of what Paul's writing here. He says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, one of the things, the more I learn about Paul and as he writes, the more I see that if you really take time and slow down and think about all that he explains through all of his letters, you see just how frequently and just how forcefully Paul is destroying every single opportunity for legalism to creep into our thinking about the gospel. It's everywhere. And even here, this is a bit subtle, but I love it. Listen, so much of what the Jews depended on was not written in the law of God but also what came as a result of tradition. And slowly, in time, all of that became part of what they understood to be added to one's righteousness. So, yes, God's law says to keep the Sabbath day holy. But we say that in order to do that, that means that you cannot walk more than a certain distance. So, if you exceed that distance, you're not keeping the Sabbath holy, therefore you have sinned. That was the way that the Jews reasoned. And Paul is saying, listen, if, if it's not laid out in God's law, then to do that thing is not a sin. If the law doesn't say, don't do it, you can do it. If the law doesn't say, do it, you don't have to do it. And no one, no one can dictate otherwise. No one. 
No religious leader, no pastor, no preacher can tell you, no, the scriptures don't say this explicitly, but you shouldn't do that anyway, or you should do that anyway. No one gets to add to what God's law says, and if you don't adhere, to call it sin. It doesn't work that way. And to suggest otherwise is to go beyond God and to do your own thing. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. There is no sin. And there is no doubt that the Jewish believers were looking at the Gentile believers and thinking, man, can you believe they're doing these things the way they're doing them? Why aren't they doing them the way we're doing them? They need to repent. They need to fix themselves. They're in sin. How prone are we to doing the same things? We see someone who does something or, or doesn't do something the way that we do it or don't do it, and, and we think, they're really in trouble. They should repent. But we have to stop and ask, wait a second, is there a law here? If not, there is no transgression. Look, you can live your life as you think is best before the Lord, but to cast guilt upon someone who is not transgressing the law of God, but is only transgressing your personal preference or your own assumption of what God requires is not a position that honors God and glorifies God in the way that we assume it does. We, we like to live out our own law and say, look at me. I'm actually very holy and I actually really please God because He requires this much, but I do this much. No, it's actually a position that says you know better than God. That God's law, it's not enough. So we need to make sure everyone is on the right track and so we need to, we need to add a little bit more. Are you smarter than God? Are you wiser than God? Do you define holiness before God? Do you define what is righteous before God? So before we stop, before we get on this place, we start looking at other Christians and judging them for all sorts of things that we personally don't like, we first have to stop and step back and ask, is there a law here? Does God speak to this in the way that I am looking at it? If not, we need to back up and to recognize that the only one in sin is the one who is claiming to know better than God. Because at that point, we are doing the very thing the Jews were doing. We are basing our understanding of justification on having the law. And at that point, it's not even God's law, it's our own. But let God be true and every man a liar. So as you put all of this together, the point of verse 15 and it supports verses 13 and 14, is this. The law, far from helping us secure our inheritance of the world, it actually works wrath and makes our sin all the more obvious. That's verse 15. And the inference from that in verse 14 is, if you try to base your right standing with God on your inheritance of the world, on keeping the law, you will make faith void and you will nullify the promise. So believe the gospel. Look to Christ. Delight in the good news that the righteousness of faith, verse 13, is not the righteousness you perform in obedience to the law, God's law or your own. 
But the righteousness of God in Christ imputed to you is by faith alone. And that's where Paul goes in our final point this morning. In verses 16 and 17, he shows us that justification has always and only depends on God's grace through faith. All those who seek to win their way to heaven by the law will find that heaven is closed because none of us can keep the law. All of us are undone. All of us are condemned by the law. The law only works wrath. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what a dreadful day it would be to appear before the judgment seat of God and all your life you've been certain that you've done enough good works, that you've followed God's law, you assume. But not only that, that you've followed your own law too and you've insisted that others around you do the same only to find out that you've missed the point altogether. This is why Paul writes in verse 16, that's why it depends on faith. Do you see now? Do you see why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace? Now, this is kind of an odd thing for Paul to write. Maybe we would tell Paul, Paul, shouldn't you be writing instead, the promises rest on grace so that it may be by faith. But that's not what he writes. He says it's by faith so that it can be by grace. Why does Paul write it that way? It's because Paul understands (coughs) that faith, (coughs) excuse me, is just my empty mouth gasping for salvation. Faith is my empty hands reaching out in desperation. Faith is my fallen humanity groping for restoration. I can only look to Christ if I'm to find help and hope, and all of that is by God's grace alone. And so the law demands obedience, and failure to uphold the law brings wrath. But faith looks to grace, and grace, he explains, guarantees the promise. That's amazing, isn't it? You see, Really, if you're honest with yourself and you find that you're trying to earn your way of acceptance before God, the only way that you could ever believe that you measure up is if you're self-deluded. You couldn't honestly, you could not honestly look at your life and say, God accepts all of that nonsense, could you? Come on, be honest. Your life is a mess. You are a mess. What you think, what you say, what you do, you are a dang mess. You know, when we're all kids, we, we look at adults and think, they have it all together. They know stuff. And then when you're an adult, you wonder, when will I have it all together and start knowing stuff? And then you die. <laughs> and all the while, you make a big mess of everything. You're a mess, but guess what? I am too. I'm a bigger mess than you, probably. There's no question in anyone's mind about that. But don't be like the Pharisee and say, I thank God that I'm not as big of a mess as that guy up there. But this is the thing about the gospel. When you admit, when you finally grasp the reality of just how big of a mess you are, when you finally come to understand that, 
you realize that God could never accept you on your own merits and just shrug it off and say it's really no big deal. No, instead he says, look to Christ. He did all of it and he wasn't a mess. He did it all for you. Look to Christ and I guarantee you will be saved as children of Abraham that will inherit the whole world. And the Jews hear all of this and you can imagine them asking Paul, are you saying, Paul, that the gospel is really about getting something for nothing? We inherit the world and we do nothing. I don't have to work for it. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to walk 20 miles just to get it. No, Paul says, that's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law. Yes, it's for the Jew. But it's also for the one who shares the faith of Abraham who isn't a Jew. We were here last week, weren't we? That means Abraham is the father of all of us who are in Christ. We're all children of Abraham by faith. Not by circumcision. Not by our attempts to keep the law. But by faith in Jesus Christ. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. There is something. God gives life to the dead. Think of Abraham and Sarah. Sarah's body was as good as dead. Abraham's body was as good as dead. And yet, out of them, God gave life. God called what was not, you see, and he gave them Isaac as a little pointer to the greater Isaac who would come in Christ, whose father would accompany him up the mountain, who would turn to the father and say, Father, we have everything, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And the father would say to him, You, my son, are the lamb for the sacrifice. And the very language that's used in the context in Genesis 22 that reappears later in this letter, as we'll see in Romans chapter 8, Isaac was spared by the father who loved him as his only son because in the place of Isaac, God's only son would be bound to the altar of Calvary. And there he would not be spared, but he would be delivered up for us all that we might be sure that with Christ... God guarantees He will give us everything we need for life and for salvation. And He's given us a new guarantee that we will be heirs of the world. You are an heir. And your everlasting inheritance is everlasting life with Christ, our Redeemer. There is no better news than that. And it requires of you nothing nothing. Look to Christ and live. Well, as we come to the table this morning, we come with this precious reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ came and lived and died and was raised from the dead for us.